Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, where podcast going beyond the bads to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about some of the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you along today. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, and today we get to welcome back a guest who previously joined us in early September for episode 17. And today he's going to navigate us through another search and rescue case or a couple of cases from his career. But uh, before we welcome him in, allow me to bring in our host. He's jolly, he's got a beard, and he lives up north. That's right, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? (laughs) My favorite time of the year. (laughs) I didn't see that coming. Thanks for doing that. I love Santa Claus. Santa Claus is awesome. You know, the hardest part of my job is coming up with different ways to intro you each week. (laughs) There's so much material to work with. I don't know why that would be a problem. So I guess I guess I feel the need to to let our listeners know that none of us have been drinking, uh, despite what uh, it may sound like sometimes. No, there's been no alcohol involved in the making of this podcast. Well, again, I'm video chatting in, so let's not speak for all of us. <laughs> well, what can you tell us about our guest, man? Well, our guest today, as I mentioned previously, uh, joined us back in September, and uh, we had a great time with him. We wanted to have him back, and uh, we're real pleased that he's in today. He's very accommodating. We had one thing scheduled, and that didn't quite work out, so he could have said, you know what, guys? We'll just do it another time. But he uh, he came through and said, no, I'm going to come. I feel bad. I want to share another case with you. So uh, we're so delighted to have him. Started his career with the Tennessee State Parks in 1987, was promoted to Chief Ranger in 1997. Of course, just retired from that role after 25 years of service. It is our pleasure to welcome back Mr. Shane Petty. Thanks so much for, for coming by and joining us again, sir. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Glad, glad to be here. And, well, Shane, I guess the first question. Uh, out of the gate here, how's retirement? It is yeah. not. I recommend it, man. It has been, <laughs> it has been uh, pretty good so far. Yeah, well, you know, has it been better uh, or, or about on par with what you thought it was going to be? Uh, where, where are we ranking? Is it is it just? I didn't realize things could be this good. Well, somebody, uh, my college professor, he said, "Look, let me give you my best advice. You'll never get caught up with the projects." And he's exactly right. There's projects on my farm at my mom's house with my in-laws. I need to do stuff for my mom. I've got nine grandkids. It's never, and he's exactly right. You do not get finished. You just go to the next. Do, do, do you sometimes look back and say, how in the world did I work full time with yes, all the stuff yes. that I'm doing? It, I was it, like Superman. Most everybody told me that, and they're exactly right, is how did you get all the loose ends and work, you know, 40 plus hours a week? But, but especially in, in the, the job that you work where the, the plus often was a big plus. Sure, sure. You leave the house and not come back for two weeks, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, man, how do how do you keep all the loose ends tied? Is it okay to talk about your first retirement goal that has been been started and completed? Yes, okay yes, yes. Well, tell I, us about I, that. I set a few goals. The first one was um, I love to fish. My family and I are big fisher folks, my wife and I. But I wanted to fish every day in the month of October. October is just my month. Everything feeds in October, especially fish. Um, I set the goal, and not only did I fish every day, but I was able to catch a fish every day. So um, um, it, it was a lot of fun on social media. You know, I would post a fish every day. So I had some friends going, now, now how, how do you fill out these retirement papers? <laughs> You're making it look pretty good. Well, well you brought up your wife. Uh, was she able to, to participate in this endeavor with you? 
let me let me choose my words very carefully. When she was off work, my my wife is a UPS driver. Okay, oh. and you know on a day like today, man, she'll she'll put in thirteen fourteen hours in this rain. And so this was a day you didn't go home and brag about fishing. <laughs> you would say, man, I, you know, I had to change the water heater or something. <laughs> you, you know, you didn't, you didn't talk about. And so the some days we just kind of let it alone. Well, let me ask you a question real quick, Shane. Sure. So did you keep on your same schedule after you retired? Were you up early in the morning or did you allow yourself to sleep in a little bit? No, I, I, my wife, you know, she'd get up at, you know, 6.30 and I would get up 6.30 and, and take a shower and hit, you know, hit, go outside, you know, hit hit the routine as best I could. Because I knew if I didn't, you know, I, yeah, you, it's easy to, you know, hey, what's on Netflix? You know, let me catch this show and get bogged into that. So it was now let me get up, get going. Let me try to stay motivated and uh, get, get a lot, you know, because. Before you could go fishing, you better get the honeydew things done. Okay. You know, you better get the house straightened, clean, figure out what's for supper, get the yard, get everything done, then go fishing. Yeah, because of their social media posts uh, showing fish that are caught. Yes. And there's not something <laughs> marked off the checklist. That's a good way to absolutely, get beat right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I have heard several times in the month of October it must be nice. So, <laughs> you know. But, but, but I believe you also said, you know what? Fishing's hard work. I, I, well, you know, that didn't go over real well. But, you know, to, to fish every day, you know, it's it's a job. You yeah, have to work but, at it. Yeah. But, uh, you might not want to let her know when this, this one's going to air. Yeah. yeah yes. But. We'll just kind of <laughs> let that one slide. Hey, but, but you, you know what? We joke about retirement, but retirement in this business, in this profession, it doesn't come without a cost. I mean, you paid the bill for your retirement with all that work that you did, with all the call outs, with all that stuff. And now you get to reap the benefits of it. But there was a, a steep cost during your career to be able to do this. Sure, sure. And, and the cost is usually your family. You know, when I would get a call and, and, and I have jokingly said this, but, um, you know, I, I left one day on a potential drowning and said, I'll probably be back late. And I didn't come back for 13 days. And so I learned pretty quick, you know, you better have a lot of plenty of underwear packed in the, you know, in the vehicle. Um, so, uh, but that's part of it. And, and so with uh, uh, nine grandkids, you know, it's time to uh, uh, pay it back to them. You, you know, some areas where you may have missed. Uh, I'm able to pay it forward. Um, I've done several podcasts with different folks. I've got one uh, radio host uh, uh, in Cookville tomorrow. So I'm still doing a lot of teaching. So I still have the ability to pay it forward and, and uh, uh, pass on some knowledge that uh, they allowed me to gain. You know, it, it, the uncertainty part of law enforcement, not, not, I mean, there's enough uncertainty on the part of, of people on the professional side, but the uncertainty for our families, I think often kind of gets overlooked. Sure. There's sure. a whole lot of uncertainty. Uh, there's the uncertainty of when you're going to be home. And the uncertainty of, are, are you going to be there on the special day? Uh, but there's also that uncertainty that you may not be coming home at all. Sure, sure. And in fact, uh, I want to go ahead and get this out there, uh, if we could. When we were here, uh, when we did the last episode, it was shortly after the state of Tennessee lost a couple uh, of officers uh, in a line of duty incident. And uh, I was telling you that I was uh, blessed to run into 
a couple guys from the agency uh, last month when I was doing some teaching in Tennessee, and, and the agency has produced a challenge coin uh, in honor uh, of of the deputy and also as a fundraiser for the family. And uh, I, I know that, that you had connections uh, with that officer and with that agency, and uh, we're going to throw it in the show notes how our listeners can go and, and buy one of those challenge coins because it's especially poignant this time of year, that lack of that person being here as we just came through Thanksgiving or going into Christmas. Sure, sure. And, and they both had really young kids. So, uh, you know, that, that, that tugs at our hearts a little it, bit more. It, it truly is a family. and We have to take care of family. So for our listeners, be looking for that in our show notes. And, and, and if you're able and, and willing, we would appreciate, I would appreciate personally if you would consider uh, going and purchasing one of those to honor uh, this officer and to help support his family. So, but let's move on. Uh, uh, we were here last time and we, we talked about some of the, the cases you've been involved in. And, and in this episode, I'd kind of like to take you back to your first couple of cases and just kind of walk through them because those were the, the foundation for what you did the rest of your career. So, so tell me about your first your first track. Sure. Well, um, first search I was ever called on, um, we, um, of course, I, I worked for Tennessee State Parks, um, but um, we have been requested many times over the years to go assist the Great Smoky Mountains, their national park. But when their resources, like any agency, gets uh, uh, taxed out, they will reach out. And Tennessee State Parks, being rangers from your um, backcountry experience, uh, search and rescue they would request us. So in 1993, they had a young man, uh, an 11-year-old uh, uh, young boy out of Alabama who had gone hiking with his family in the Rainbow Falls area in the Smokies. And he had gotten separated. He went on up a front, and apparently he had gotten off the trail. Parents didn't realize it. They hiked on up to the falls, and by the time they got to the falls, they realized Brad's not here. And they immediately started looking for him. The dad was frantic. Uh, they rushed back to the parking lot to get a hold of rangers. This is a little before cell phone, so, you know, a lot of, a uh, little downtime. And uh, a massive search was, uh, you know, started pretty quick. And we got there on about day three. Uh, this went into day seven, I believe, day six or seven. And, um, uh, unfortunately, this young boy had uh, gotten off the trail and trying to, what we feel, making his way back to the waterfall. He found a creek drainage, saw a waterfall, and he was on the creek drainage. He just, in trying to get up in that steep grade, slipped and fell about 150 foot uh, to his death. So he probably died, unfortunately, a couple of hours into that day. But um, the problem he um, was uh, the, his color clothing and a poncho was a little green camouflage type. And he fell into a heavily thick area of rhododendron. So it just was hard to spot his body. Um, and in the rugged area where he went, we just didn't think an individual could have done that. But what the motivating factor was every day when you come off the mountain, you know, spending 10, 12 hours on your hands and knees to see the mom and dad. And they're just looking for you, you know, to, you know, did you find anything, a footprint, a um, piece of clothing, anything? And, man, that's, that, that tugs at your heartstrings. Um, well, it, it's, 
the thing that strikes me, and it's not just in this case right here, but the work that is done behind the scenes is often overlooked. And even if it's not overlooked, it's underappreciated, not because the, the people don't want to appreciate, but simply because they don't know how difficult, how draining that, that, that type of effort is. Sure. Sure. Um, the national park rangers, you know, the, they can't expend, I mean, they have resources there, but they've got to put a whole operational plan together. And, and, you know, and that means you don't go to sleep. You know, if you've got 50 people coming in at seven o'clock in the morning, you better have a plan of what for them to do. And um, and, and the family is looking at you each day to say, what are you doing? And, And of course, the newspaper and different things, you know, get caught up into it. And so, You've got to have a very big operational plan put together and a good solid plan. Of course, it's it's based on, you know, some hypothesis and, and just some guesses. But a lot of people don't realize if you brought in 200 people to come on a search, which is, is kind of normal, um, you know, that's a lot of people to food, you know, to feed them, put up, you know, got to put them up in a hotel. You know, we came several hours away. Um, if we're going to be there for three or four days, usually they would want us to hike in and stay there. So we'd be a self-contained. We would just hike in in, in uh, 15 miles or so and stay at a, uh, at a crossroads on a trail just to see if anybody come through had seen him or if the individual. So there's a lot of logistics on trying to, you know, bottle water and snacks just for them for every day. So there's a lot of wheels that go uh, in motion. And just like it is uh, in a city law enforcement agency, uh, other calls for service aren't that they, they don't stop coming in. You still have to be able to respond to those things. There's still things going on in the park. So managing the resources has to be one of the most difficult things that, that has to be undertaken in any search and rescue. Sure. And I, I've been in the Smokies where they've had multiple search and rescues going at the same time. So, um, you know, we've had to divide and go, hey, we've got two people missing. We've got to divide our resources. And so, as you said, you, you know, the work goes on. The car wreck down at the end of the spur. I mean, you know, everything keeps going. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, in this one, you, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, it was a fatality early on. But it, as you said, it, it was the one that fueled me um, to go, okay, this is my thing. What can I do? How can I educate myself a little bit further? And, um, and, and so I started taking classes through the Tennessee Emergency Management Agency and um, started getting used to, um, through the search field, we usually teach classes like on uh, man tracking. Um, uh, and then it can go from GPS land navigation, you know, how to read a map, how to read a compass. Um, and, and then the big classes are how to manage a search, you know, so early in your career, your boots on the ground, as you get older, body's not quite what it was, or in my capacity as chief, you know, somebody had to be in charge. So, you know, you've got to set up an incident command system and, and start that whole planning process. And in, in, in today's, age of gps and satellite positioning and all that kind of stuff man when, when you go back in the day i can remember one of the most difficult skills to learn in the military and one of the things that people struggle with the most and, and fail out of classes for is land navigation sure you're using map reading and a compass and understanding elevation and, and and pace count and all that 
How do you handle that? How do you manage that as a dog handler? I mean, because I know you've got people with you, but but they're, they're, you can't just abandon all responsibility for knowing where the hell you're at. It, it, well, um, I've been lost many times, <laughs> you know, because you, you don't have that. Now, in today's uh, world, it's pretty nice because you just click on an app uh, on, when you start and it tells exactly where you've been and it'll tell you how to get back. But in the day, you know, there's been many a radio call saying, can you blast the siren real <laughs> loud? And, and, you know, and what's not enjoyable is when you cannot hear it. And yeah, that was about yeah. to say, if you got, if your buddies on the other end of that line, they don't hit it for you just because they want to jack with you. Yeah. Not that I, I may have known somebody that did that. Just say it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that brings it, up a good question, that. though. Do you uh, still hone in on those skills or you can't rely on GPS all the time. I don't rely on it at all. It, it's a great asset, but you better know, you know, the battery will run down. The right. signal will not work. And, and, and I joke in every class that I teach, I will joke and say, Hey, this technology stuff, it's not going to be around, you know, it's a passing <laughs> fad, yada, yada. <laughs> I say that in jest that, yeah, you better have a compass and you better have a map and know how to read it um, just in case. So, you, Listen, I watched The Walking Dead. I know how this <laughs> thing's going to end. You know, you're, you're going to need that map reading skills because all the electronic stuff going away. Sure. And, and there's been several searches I've been on where an individual was following their GPS and the battery would go dead. And it, then they'd wander off. It'd come back on. It'd, it'd take them back. And we would just be this, uh, you know, cat and mouse game, you know, until they finally decided, oh, the batteries are dead. I'm just going to sit still and we can find them. Um, well, so it, it, it's it's a challenge. Hey, Brent, I'd just like to point out to you that I've been in the car with some people who were navigating by GPS and the battery didn't go dead and they still didn't end up where they were supposed to be. Just throwing that out there. Okay. Well, I'll come to your rescue. Uh, as chief, I would get a call a week and it would usually be through a 911 center through team and to me. And it would be somebody usually going to fall Creek falls. And I know exactly where they are. I said, you're at the fire tower, right? They're like, how did you know? I said, because you followed your GPS instead of the map and it will not bring you in. Do not, do not follow your GPS. You know, it's okay as a rough guide, but get a map out and look at it because um, it, even today, and, and I'm not bashing this company, but I've worked heavily with them. One of the biggest ones is called All Trails. It's a big hiking app. But there's a lot of inconsistencies and in, corrections on it, especially in state parks, and it will take you in the wrong direction. You know, the trail will be here. The apple say it should go through here, and folks will turn and just walk through the woods and and just ignore any sign that we've put up. Well, yeah, it was kind of funny going back to the map reading thing. Uh, the maps not only used to serve as a navigation aid, but also as a sobriety task. Because if you could fold that thing back up the way in which it came out, there was no way that you could have been drinking. Sure, sure. <laughs> Listen, I've been exactly. to Disney World a couple of times. People still can't read maps, you know? <laughs> and, and, and they don't read signs. So oh, yeah, I'll the just signs. Uh, yeah, agree with that see one. the signs. But, but it, it, th this one right here, let's go back to the case if we could. Um, when you have a tragic ending like that, it, you also have the human element that you have to deal with because – once you make that discovery, now you have to tell the parents. Sure, sure. Um, and I've done that dozens and dozens of times. And, you know, there's there's no book that really can can relay that one to you. Um, this not being my case, I didn't have to do that one. But 
certainly saw the parents on that day. Um, I, I did get the opportunity two years ago to go back and visit with the family and interview them. And the one thing I wanted to make sure um, uh, in the process, I'm still my my next retirement goal is writing a book on search and rescue. And I wanted to get their permission to write about their son. But I had done several things, one being a canine and one being a program called Hug a Tree, where I've educated thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids in the, over the years. And it was designed to tell kids what to do if they do get lost and to stay put, stay on a trail, hug a tree what to take 10 essentials with them. And I wanted the parents of Brad to know that, you know, their son, you know, even though it was a tragic, his, his life, you know, didn't go unnoticed. And we were able to educate a lot of kids from that one case. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you could bring some comfort to them uh, on that. Um, the fast forward from that, a year from there, um, in 1994, we went back to the Smokies. This was in Clingman's Dome, so a different part of the National Park. There was a little young man, uh, nine-year-old Philip Roman, who had got uh, separated from his family and lost in the woods. He wandered off on the Appalachian Trail, and which runs for miles in the Smokies, and about 81 miles in the Smokies, I believe. And once it got dark, he ventured off and stayed lost for uh, five days. Now, now, how did that call get to you? Um, pretty much the same way. The National Park Service said, hey, we've got this big one. It, you know, it's 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 going to, you know, it's it, it was in April, so it's a busy time for them. We need some assistance. So what they do is they go through the Tennessee Emergency Management Agency, and they will dispatch resources that are properly trained, whether it's canine, horseback, boots on the ground, you know, aviation assets, whatever. So they brought us again as boots on the ground. And so you're you're brought in for that, and I'm assuming again that that, that you see the parents, uh, yes, and and, and it, you know how the last one ended, and and that has to be there a little bit in the back of your mind. I'll be honest with you, and I think we talked about this before. That in my experience, the most difficult calls always involve kids. Sure, sure, and and, and especially if I'd have had bad experiences very early on, I, I think I might would have been reluctant to go back and put myself out there again, because you're putting yourself out there, not just, not just from a physical standpoint, but from a psychological standpoint, sure, yeah. you're running the risk of having that. So, so tell me about that search. Well, um, we had a positive lead when uh, we got there, the national park rangers did an outstanding job. When you, when you hear the phrase needle in the haystack, this, this young boy had on uh, dockers and, the bottom of the footprint were hundreds of little triangles. And one of the National Park Rangers had found where um, Philip had stepped over a log. And there were about four or five little bitty triangles that he could identify in 500,000 acres. That's a needle Jeez. in the haystack. If they would not have, if they didn't do that, he'd have never been found alive. Uh, I, I'm very sure of it because it put us in the right area. Um, and, and I was very blessed. Um, you know, Bob Swabe, uh, Bob was a former FBI director or, or agent uh, and worked for TEMA. And he knew they had found a footprint and he kind of pushed some doors to get me on that team. He just, something he saw in me, you know, that he, he was a big search guy. I was actually on the team that found this young man after five days. Um, I'm pretty sure he would not have made it um, another 24 hours. He, he was injured pretty bad, and he'd been out in these elements for a while. Well, uh, let's go back to the footprint for a second, if we could. I think that one of the 
the not problems, but one, one of the issues that that many young folks, when they're coming into this profession, that uh, that they struggle with is recognizing that seemingly insignificant small things can make a huge difference on the back end and not to overlook the small things. Because if you didn't have the footprint, likely would have been a different outcome. Sure. As we teach, we're not looking for the person. We're looking for clues. Now, our our outcome is we hope we find the individual okay. But when we're searching, you're not looking up for a nine-year-old kid. You're looking at the ground to find you know, did he discard anything out of his pocket? You know, any candy? Did he go to the bathroom? Uh, natural part of it, but it's a part of science. Um, and the only thing they're going to leave behind is a footprint or a scent for a uh, canine. So if your boots on the ground and you're going through man tracking classes, that is all it is. Is it is you are looking for clues, and that is the number one priority. Broken branches, anything that may you know you're running through. You're pushing them with your hand, so you're looking up, scanning up, scanning down, anything. Okay, a two-pronged question here, okay? All the stuff that you've just described to me, except for the scent, had nothing whatsoever to do with a dog. It had to do with with the handle. Sure, sure. And and so I want to address that part of it first. When you're going through training to be a handler, it's not just learning how to manage the dog, is it? Um, that's a lot of it. That That is knowing your dog backwards and forward, what they're doing when they're really on working, when they're goofing off. It's kind of like watching your kids, you, you know, um, you know, reading your dog is a big one, but you've still got to read signs. You've still got to go with your gut intuition sometime, um, and, and just stop and go, okay, let's, let's evaluate and let's look what, you know, we look at a lot of, uh, uh information called lost person behavior, what would this individual do at this crossroad or at this junction? Now, what, what would it, taking me down a rabbit hole here? See the wildlife reference right there. Sure, yeah, yeah. But but what 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 do you mean by lost person behavior at a crossroads? What what, what are you looking for? What are you assessing that would say, hey, you know what? I think that they would go right here rather than left. Well, um, the best information that we've got at our fingertips now in the search world, in my thought, is uh, a gentleman uh, called Robert Kester, and he has put together written a book. I've taken his class. And he's got an app called Lost Person Behavior. And what he has done, he has he's got his Ph.D. in search and rescue, uh, basically. And he has taken thousands of uh, searches over the years and put them together. And so statistically, you can take this app out. It's on my phone. And you can say you can type in a four year old that was lost out hiking and the weather. And it will statistically tell you. 95% of the time that this kid will be found within 0.3 miles. So we know going into the search, they're not going to make it that far. Now, if the age changes, weather, terrain, uh, the app changes. And, and so, and it gives you a tactical brief on everything of where you should be looking, what a per- kid will do 95% of the time or 75% of the time. It's not an absolute, but it just gives you an idea so not only are we, and that's usually for your operation on your planning people, how to put together that plan. In the tactical world, we call that baseline behavior, recognizing the, now, that doesn't mean that there, you're not going to have anomalies, 
But typically speaking, in this environment right here, I should expect to see this. And when I start to see those anomalies, that's when I need to really start paying attention. But but going back to your dog, you had to focus on the dog. You're taking cues from the dog, but you also are taking cues from the environment, aren't you? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Of thinking, you know, how could a nine-year-old make it this far? You know, I'm struggling. Uh, I'm soaking wet. I'm cold. I'm miserable. You know, how's this kid navigating the same terrain? If we're in the same terrain, you know, how is he doing that? Um, and, and the interesting part, you know, we, we found him and found him alive and got to carry him out on our backs. Had to because he was too weak. Um, but um, another one, a couple of years ago, I got to interview him. He had been, uh, wow. uh, took me a while to track him down, but uh, we're talking 27, 28 years later. Uh, well, 30 years, and he was uh, living in Alaska, and he, uh, but he, his dad lived in Georgia, and we were able to hook up uh, Tennessee, Georgia line, and uh, we kind of talked about, you know, how he got lost, what he was doing, when he remembers seeing us, you know, and just kind of talking about all the different things, so I was able to put a lot of that uh, together, and, uh, you know, and realize, and he kind of put it in the back of his head of just, you know, that's something I kind of forgot but he wrote me a real nice letter and just said, hey, you, you know, I didn't realize how close to death I was until you told me. And, um, you know, my parents wouldn't have seen me graduate college, go to the Army, you know, spend two two tours in Iraq uh, and then, you know, work for the FAA, FAA in Alaska. So and he's a big outdoors person, does a lot of hiking in Alaska. So. It's a lot of little things you you know you can kind of you know go hey that's that, that, that's I had a part stuff. of that yeah when you find these folks and do you actually interview them and then use that information for training purposes once somebody goes missing you go oh well here's what this other person did let's see if this might work we have the two cases we have just discussed I have probably taught ten thousand times to um, I, I've talked to every. Uh, highway patrolman in the state of Tennessee to most National Guard members, uh, to a lot of TBI agents. I teach at the uh, police academy for many years. Um, so these ca- that's exactly what they're, they're case studies. Um, and, uh, and that's exactly what we're doing, Brent, is using those to say, hey, these are the best practices. And, and, and that's always evolving you know, now with uh, technology being able to add that into it, um, you, you're it's it's the training is ongoing always. Hey, Brent, I don't know about you, brother, but if I got lost in the woods like that when I was a kid, I'm not so sure I'd be a big outdoorsman up in the wilderness state up in Alaska, man. I know, and I'm I'm really genuinely curious about how this nine year old survived on his own for five days because oh. I'm telling you, I I'm not quite sure I'd make it that that far. Well, you know, he did some things that we don't really recommend. He actually ate some blueberries. You know, we don't really recommend that, especially for a nine-year-old. You know, you know, hey, take some classes on wild edible foods. He drank a little stream water. We don't really recommend that, but, you know. At that point, you're pretty, he's doing what he's got to do. Exactly. And what he did, he had enough small training from his parents, his grandparents, and from the Boy Scouts to say, man, I need to have some shelter. So it kind of got in a rock shelter. I, I kid you not, when we found him, I was a mess. Man, I was soaking wet. I was freezing. And I looked at him, and, man, he looked like he just walked out of J.C. Penney. He was in shorts and a T-shirt, but he had kind of, you know, been scuffed up. But he had stayed, you know, in a little rock shelter and, and stayed out of the rain well enough and stayed out of the wind. And, you know, because we are really, really concerned about hypothermia. Man, wild edible food is the flaming Hot Cheetos. You know, that, that's me adventuring out and 
doing that type of thing right there. But, but you know, when you go and you look at behavior like that, uh, it always comes back to me, and, and I'll share my walk this morning with you in just a second, but the resiliency that that seems to be present in some human beings that that is is lacking in others and a lot of resiliency can be trained it's a skill sure. that, that can be trained but at nine years old uh, i i'm not so sure that that i would have made that oh, yeah. and he said he's like i was never scared he said i could hear dogs barking and i could hear the helicopters so he said i knew y'all were looking for me and i knew you'd find me so again, Brent, you, you know, that's something that we try to teach into kids, you know, and I'm, you know, and, and what I would always do when I would teach this class called hug a tree uh, for them, what to do if they do get lost, but I'd always bring my canine in and then let a kid in the class go get lost and then find them with a canine and say, Hey, we're going to come with the dogs. We're going to come with people. We're going to have helicopters. This is how you flag a helicopter down, not to be afraid of it. So, um, you know, you, 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 you pass on as much knowledge as you can to think, you know, hope you can save another life uh, if they do get lost. It's like my dad used to say, is it maintain and improvise, you know, and sure. just keep on doing what you're doing until help gets there. You, you talked, you asked him what it was like for him to see you when, when he was found. What was it like for you to see him? Um, you know, besides JC Penny. Well, exactly. You, you, you know, whether, you know, it's, uh, it, it changed my world, you know, cause there I was just, as you said, the last search I was on, man, you know, a bad ending. Well, this changed everything. It's just, you know, the motivation, um, in, in the uh, elevation change to be able to carry this kid out. I mean, you couldn't, you put him on your back and you could go about 10 or 12 feet and you were dead tired. You had to pass him off to somebody else, but you wanted to the next time, (laughs) but the next time you're like, Hey, hey, I can take him again. Um, but, uh, walking out and talking to him, and and this is something that, um, still this day, uh, just very moving to be able to give him to his mom and dad. And, and and I remember mom distinctly just looking at me and, and, you know, she's crying. She's emotional. She couldn't really say, I love you. She just kind of mouthed it because you know, she was just too emotional. And, um, I, I got very emotional. I mean, I, I lost it uh, just uncontrollably uh, crying. And, you know, and it was a moving, moving time in my life. And that's when I said, this search and rescue thing is going to be my thing. You know, I, I've seen what you can do, you know, and uh, man, I've been on, I've been on a lot of them. Wait, wait, here's another question for you. How did the dog react? Well, I didn't have a canine. At that oh. time, this was before I became canine. So th- this was all just you. Yes. However, let me tell you my motivation. The day we found him, minutes before we found him, there was a canine officer there. And we had stopped to eat lunch. And we were, uh, I think they had packed peanut butter jelly sandwiches. And this guy's dog kept trying to get our peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> and I was a little bit mad, not because... You know, I didn't want to feed the dog, but I, I told the guy, I said, look, wouldn't this be a great time for you to cast your dog off and let him go search while we're taking a break? And he kind of gave me that look like you don't know what you're talking about. And he was right. I had not been trained. But ironically, Philip was not 30 feet, 30 yards from us. He was just over our drainage. You couldn't hear him and he couldn't hear us because of the water draining. But this guy could have had his best canine find in his entire world if he had just said, hey, let me let me cast the dog while we're all sitting still. The scent's not being, uh, you know, uh, discriminated in any way. 
Instead, it was just us walking up on him. So it let me give me the idea that, you know, um, you can use canine, but you got to have the right canine, the right training and use the right people with the right canine. It, and a lot of times people in police agencies want to be a canine handler because they like dogs. And you have to like dogs, sure, sure. But but it, it's a different mindset when you're utilizing the canine for tracking. Absolutely, yeah. And, and so for somebody who's considering a career in law enforcement, or, or maybe who's somebody who's already in law enforcement but they're considering becoming a canine handler, what would you say are the most important skills or characteristics that somebody needs to bring in order to be an effective canine handler? My best advice: come see me. Let me drag you through the woods, through the muck, the mire, cross the river, cross the creek, let you freeze, and we'll stay out there for about 10 hours and then come back. And if you are excited and say, man, that's for me, because I had an 80-year-old man, and that's what he did to me. He was an old bloodhound handler, and I had just asked him if he could assist me, and that's exactly what he did on my first one. The man was 80 years old. He kept me out there for 10 hours. And, and and he knew, man, I was still chomping at the bit going, man, this is it. Um, and he, 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 he you know, when the, on the day he died, you know, he was very proud of me. He said, I have trained dozens and dozens of people, and you are one of two that I'm very proud of. So um, it's, it's easy to be the glamour of it. Um, and and I, I say this in no disrespect, but um, I've, I've had to do a lot of criminal searches and with my canine in I've been out through the woods chasing somebody and stopped and turn around, and the guys that were with me are along with me. And they're just not physically able. Uh, they didn't have the proper equipment. You know, they're wearing cowboy boots. And so um, you just, you know, you, it's like anything. You need a job to shadow that, a canine officer, a good canine officer, and a hardworking dog. And to realize, you know, you take off to find somebody, they might be 1,400 feet or they might be 14 miles and if that dog's going, you know, you better be ready. And, and I, I guess that's one of the things that, that uh, is mind boggling to me is when we're talking search and rescue, uh, most of the time it's in very out of the way places. Sure. And, and the, the geographic scope of what you're working in is something that, that I'm just not used to. And, and, it would be intimidating for me when you start thinking in terms of 14 miles, 14 miles is a long vehicle pursuit, sure. but I'm in a car. Sure. Right. Sure. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not humping. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not carrying all my gear and got my dog's gear. It's a physical uh, requirement that you be fit, but there's a mental aspect to it that I think that's even more important. Sure. So, so is that something that can be developed? Is it something that can be improved that mental aspect of it? Um, absolutely. Um, and a lot is kind of like what Brent said is, is looking at case studies. My last search that I had that I ended my career on, um, took 417 days to complete. Um, and, and I have taught and will teach this class for a long time because we used, uh, uh, every available resource that you can think of. We did everything on the cutting edge, whether it would be canine, people man tracking aviation i mean uh drones i mean we did a really well job and we just could not find him um and the young man had uh, ended up uh what we believe fell off a cliff and was covered by an avalanche 
And so there was just nobody there. You know, we we had assets that were real close to him, um, and we were eventually able to use um, technology to find him. But uh, we, you know, we thought he had, you know, may have hiked out of there. We thought he may have faked this and was in the ROW, rest of the world. So you've got to use investigators. I, I mean, it's it was a major ordeal. And I had a lot of people say, Shane, he's not in the park. He's not there. He's in Jamaica. He's in Mexico. He's in, Can- you know, you're, you're wasting your time. And I said, well, maybe so, but, in, you know. Unless I can find him somewhere else, and you know, after 417 days, with the use of some new technology and cell phone forensics, we were able to locate him. Uh, w- would it be safe to say that, uh, and we talked about it a little bit already, that technology, the advancement of technology, has helped? It has improved the quality of searches in some ways. Yes. Because yes. Back, back, you didn't have GPS. Uh, if your if your radio was anything like mine back in the day, uh, if I wasn't sitting beside you in the car, we're probably not talking. Yeah, to absolutely, each other. yes. And 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 now you've got uh, GPS, you, you you've got drones, but but it, it can't. That doesn't replace the training aspect for the boots on the ground. Sure, sure, sure. It, it let us know too. There's no absolutes. You know, you can go book by book. Um, and lost person behavior and, and do everything correct. But, you know, th- there are just no absolutes in that search world. And that, that let us know, you know, I, I was very comfortable and the family was comfortable of what we had done in, in the amount of resources and time we had put into it. But um, just, you know, to find that needle in the haystack, it's, it, it you know, there's a lot of sleepless nights. Well, we, we talked earlier about the, the impact that it has on your family. We, we, we talked about the, the, the victim's family, but we can't discount the danger that you're exposed to while you're doing these. You personally are doing it. Sure, you're exposed sure, to Sure. How did your family handle that? I, you know, it's um, when I got married, you know, I just, you know, we had to have a long talk and say, you think you know what I do, but, you know, you really have no idea. And, and of course, I really don't have any idea because, you know, there's so many variables on each one. Uh, when you go out there. So, you know, you just have to, uh, when you do a search, you know, part of that operational planning is you've got to have a safety briefing. I've been on searches where, you know, some of our searchers did not come back, you know, because just of a tragic accident. So that is going to happen, you know, uh, on that end of it. So we try our best not to. We uh, train as hard as we can from every scenario. But, you know, you're in the woods in the middle of the night, you know, it's, uh, so, you know, anything during the day is tough and dangerous going over boulders, trying to do it at night, you know, just adds that much more to it. And, and I, I think that some people, and it would, I would be in that group of people that w- we think that when you're talking search and rescue, that that's, uh, it's not a potentially life threatening situation. You know, the potentially life threatening situations for me are somebody with a gun, sure. but, but, but you guys are out there. And it's not shocking, but it goes against what I intuitively believe to hear that you have searchers that didn't come back. As a search team member, how can you continue the search after something like? Because again, you still have a mission. Sure, sure. So how do you how do you handle that 
Well, you know, as a team, of course, a lot of debriefing, you know, uh, and, and that can go on for years, you know, that, you know, you feel responsible that you put them out there or they didn't know about this uh, hazard. And, and most time it's just a tragic accident, but you try to mitigate it as best you can on the front end and then just train, you know, on, on the back end of going, hey, this is what happened. You know, here's what we're going to change. Um, and, and kudos, you, you know. We're talking about Tennessee State Parks, but uh, every county has got an EMA or rescue squad, police agencies that they do this every week uh, out of the year uh, in, in all, you know, the entire world. But kudos and hats off to those folks because we don't know. We're, we're at sleep at home in our bed, and they're out there all night long, you know, in the rain and uh, just trying to, uh, you know, bring somebody's loved one home. And so kudos to them. And I want to echo that for a second. Uh, Brent, I'm a big fan of Deadliest Catch. I don't know if you've ever watched that before, but listening to to Shane's stories and watching that type show, they're not chasing criminals most of the time. They're out there trying to help people that are lost, that are injured, and and they they fulfill their task at great personal risk. And, And how do we keep finding people like that? I have no idea. I, that's a good question. <laughs> I was I was shared with Shane before we started recording. I was teaching in in Tennessee a few weeks ago, and in my car I encountered three bears, and and, <laughs> and uh, wildlife rearing his ugly head again. But 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 the thing is though, uh, you could encounter something like that out there while you're searching sure. for a person. Sure. That's sure. what I was going to ask. Is not only the elements, but you've got wildlife that you're contending with as well. Correct. Absolutely. It's not just the environment. It, it can be wildlife. Uh, you know, um, it, it can be other folks that, you know, if you were searching for a missing person on somebody's land, you know, they, they might turn around and shoot at you, think you're an intruder, you know, so you've got to let the neighbors know, you know, hey, we're looking for a lost person, criminal whatsoever. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of different hazards. You know, Brent, one of the things, too, that that uh, I'm amazed by uh, getting to have talks like these is the complexity of some of these operations. Search and rescue uh, at face value seems very simple. Go down the path, (laughs) search the area where the person was lost. But there is just so much more involved in it than that. Yeah, until you get into it, I mean, you. I think we all really take it for granted in law enforcement in general. You just kind of take it for granted. Oh, well, this is what they do, and then, but no, you get into the nuts and bolts of it. There's it's multi-layered, multi-faceted of the things they have to contend with and and think about, and all these different things that are going on at once. It's quite complex. As we're wrapping things up, uh, I just have to throw this out there. Uh, this morning, um, my friend Joe Willis. Uh, does a fundraiser every year for first health and and what he does starting on uh, veterans day is he takes a state and the number of first responders that we lost to suicide in that state, he walks that number of miles that day in honor of those folks. And he does it to, to, to honor them. And uh, I've gotten, because uh, I live in Michigan, I, I do the Michigan day virtually with him and today is that day so I I woke up early in the hotel this morning and and I went out and did the four miles in in honor of those folks but based upon what you said today I'm not cut out for canine work because it was it was raining quite a bit and I was (laughs) I wasn't wearing any gear I was miserable 
We've got room in the command center for you. How about that? Well, what's, what's the line? I need to be in the rear with the gear. <laughs> but, hey, hey, you know what, it, man? It was a pleasure having you back here. No, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. You know, it, this is part of the education here. It, you know, just part of it of, you know, we reach folks before they go out hiking this weekend. Uh, telling our kids, telling family members, just, you know, hey, you do a little preparation before you go. It does make a difference. It's like getting in your car. It's probably a good idea to have some blankets in the trunk and you know, maybe some flashlights and stuff because you just don't know. Hey, Amen, brother. You yeah. don't know. Hey, hey Brent, uh, again, I am blown away uh, by the dedication of the people that do this job, no matter what. Uh, it's like uh, Shane mentioned earlier, nights, weekends, holidays, uh, that he was away from his family. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't say, uh, especially during this month of December, of as we're coming up on the holidays, I know we're all getting ready to take some time off. And there's a lot of folks out there that are uh, out in search and rescues. They're out in law enforcement. They're on 911. And then they're not able to take that time off and the time away from their families. I know I, uh, I learned from a gentleman in 911 who said they celebrated Christmas December 28th every year because he knew he'd be working Christmas. Um, so we want to take some time to say thank you to all the folks that are out there sacrificing their own family time for our safety. And Shane, we say thank you to you for sacrificing. And we hope that you get to enjoy your retirement. And thank you for coming and, and educating all of our listeners today. Thank you, brother. Appreciate y'all having me. Thanks. Yeah. And if you want to hear uh, Shane on a previous episode, it's episode number 17. We've got it right there in the archives on our website. We encourage you guys to go check it out and all the other episodes. It's Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. <laughs>